Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This just in, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the U.K., police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. Earth. and freedom will be defended. The uniqueness of policing lies within the many roles that can be undertaken to support the community day in and day out. From dog operations to diving units, public order teams, traffic investigations and homicide squads. One of the many areas that offers one of the best offices in the police is in the sky. The National Police Air Service, NPAS, operates a borderless air support service right across the country out of its 15 primary bases and two support bases around London. The fleet of EC-135 and 145 aircraft give police officers on the ground the vital support needed to find missing people, to track down armed offenders, to pursue safely stolen vehicles, as well as monitoring large crowds at public order events right up and down the country. Adrian Bleese was one of the lucky few to sit in the back seat as a tactical flight officer and air observer for over 10 years with the Suffolk Constabulary and National Police Air Service. In this episode of Protect and Serve, Adrian talks us through his time in air operations, the challenges, the risks and dangers that exist in the role and the tasks he undertook as a tactical flight officer. Adrian opens up about the moment he reconsidered his position in air operations after the tragic events of 2013, when a police helicopter crashed in Glasgow, killing the entire crew 
and nine people on the ground. All this and more next on Protect and Serve. Okay, well, welcome to another episode of Protect and Serve. And again, another week and another exciting guest to talk to us about. More so the support activities. You know, there's a lot of functions that make policing successful right across the UK. You know, we've had some incredible episodes with, you know, specialist firearms officers and detectives, patrol officers and traffic officers. But but one area that we haven't really focused on, and I'm incredibly honoured to be talking to a chap who spent a number of years in this role, is the air support service for the police services right up and down the country. Um, and uh, it is an honour to introduce everyone to Adrian Bleece. Adrian, welcome to the podcast. How are you this evening? I'm very well, thanks, Oliver. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute privilege. Now, like at the start of every one of my podcasts, we want to start at the beginning. And your entry into policing is a unique one because it started in the Defence Force. Tell us about that. Well, I was in the I was in the Royal Air Force before I before I, I worked for the police. So I I, I was on uh, Nimrod Maritime Patrol aircraft, uh, flying mainly over the North Atlantic, but lots of lots of other places as well. Uh, hunting for submarines and uh, and carrying out search and rescue. I did that for sort of six years or so. And then you made the transition out of the Defence Force into policing, but in a very unique, obviously you had the aviation bug and you've had that since you since you were a young child, but then you moved into a control room operator position. Was the, was the dream always to get back into the skies or had you kind of left that behind you? The skies always has been and, and, and still is the dream. Uh, but uh, and 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 I've, that's something that's been been with me since I was seven years old. Um, but um, I, I didn't really think I was going to get another chance to to uh, to fly for a, for a, a career anyway. Uh, and uh, as I when I left the, the Royal Air Force, um, I uh, nobody wanted any submarines found, so I had to get a proper job. And I <laughs> I, I did have a, a few proper jobs in offices and things like that, but they didn't really suit me. Um, and this uh, a job came up in the in the police control room for Suffolk, uh, answering the 999 calls and dispatching officers to jobs and, and all of that kind of thing. Um, and I applied for that and started working there in the summer of 1998 and absolutely loved every second of it. It was a fantastic job. You know, a hundred times a night you helped people going through the worst thing that they'd ever gone through in their life. And it was a it was a real honour, and it was absolutely fantastic. I enjoyed every moment of it. But um, Suffolk got a helicopter in two thousand. Uh, they they didn't have a helicopter prior to that. They used to buy it in from other forces, but they got their own helicopter in two thousand. And about three days after the the helicopter arrived, I started pestering HR department and the head of HR with uh, sort of uh, <laughs> one or two letters a week saying, uh, are you going to let civilians be part of the crew of the helicopter? So uh, it's a really interesting transition. And if we can just quickly step back into that control room operator spot that you found yourself in, which requires an incredible level of calm, an incredible level of an ability to multitask, to be able to take the information, to feed it out and to allocate crews as quickly as you can. Was there any, you know, what was the recruitment for that? Like, how did you find yourself in that comms role? Because you'd gone from, you know, flying in the back of aircraft and doing all that incredible work in navigating, trying to find submarines, to suddenly trying to support people, as you quite rightly say, at their darkest moments of need. What were the skills that you brought across from the Air Force into the policing, into the comms role? 
Well, I was a I was a communicator in the in the Air Force. My my role was uh, radar, electronic warfare, and communications. So communicating was something that I was used to. I was used to um, reacting to to incidents, you know, in fairly in fairly quick time. And I think that was what the what the Royal Air Force gave to me. Um, and what the what all of the forces do is uh, they they drop you into situations that you really weren't expecting and then expect you to fight your way out of it in one way or another. Uh, and, uh, and, and that's what, that's what my, my time in the air force gave me to bring over. Any memorable calls that you'd had to handle and deal with to allow a situation to be resolved in the control room. Yeah. Gosh. I mean, they were, they were all the time. Um, some of the most rewarding, were the ones that you got from people making that final call when they still still had a tiny little bit of hope left but they mm. were thinking about making taking that final step and uh, and and talking to them and and convincing them that somebody cared and that tomorrow could be better than today was those were the ones that that really mattered and those were the ones that that stuck with me it's quite incredible because you, you talk about that in terms of responding to people in their darkest hours of need and thinking that there is nothing else for them or nobody else that can support them get through some really difficult times. And then you can go to a domestic where you've got somebody trying to communicate to you covertly. So maybe their other half isn't aware that they're phoning 999 or, you know, you've got an RTA and you've got there's just so many different scenarios that you can be presented with call after call after call. So it's an incredible, diverse role requiring incredible calmness and skills to be able to navigate it it's fascinating but as you say you started writing quite regularly to the HR departments within Suffolk to uh, to obviously uh, put the feelers out for civilians to jump into the back of a, a helicopter as um, tactical air observer or, or a tactician up in the skies tell us about that transition into probably what would be considered yourself a dream role absolutely a dream role yeah uh, they they made it for me um, most most air observers or tactical flight officers or whatever they're called this week um, everywhere in the world are police officers um, almost all of them uh, and that was the case in the UK uh, back in the back in the, the early 2000s um, and really I, I got this opportunity uh, out of sheer dumb luck um, our, our chief constable at the time Paul Scott Lee later Sir Paul Scott Lee um, he knew that we were getting a helicopter, so he went off to fly with one or two other units uh, to get a feel for what a helicopter could do and how he was going to run it. And he went down to one, I believe it was in the West Country. And because it was a chief constable coming along, they didn't just send just any old copper. Uh, they, <laughs> they sent the unit executive officer, the deputy unit executive officer, and the chief pilot. Uh, and, and they all flew with the chief constable and they were flying around. And um, he said to them, so you're both civilians, are you? And they said, yes, sir. And he said, we'll have two of those as well then. What they failed to point out was the unit executive officer uh, had been a police officer for 30 years, had retired as an inspector on the Friday and had come back in a civvy <laughs> suit on the Monday. Uh, the deputy had done something similar and retired as a sergeant. So they were both 30-year coppers. Uh, but they didn't mention that to him, so so my fate was sealed through that that question and the fact that they didn't uh, they didn't fill in that that information for him. So uh, two civilian roles were created, and lots and lots of people applied, and we went through months and months of of selection, 
all sorts of things from going to the Royal Air Force, um, Royal Air Force College at Cranwell for the, uh, for the officer and aircrew selection centre there, going through that. Uh, and sort of running up and down the gym and the beep test and uh, interviews and flight tests and, and all sorts of things. It took, it took months and months. And two of us, myself and a chap called Roger Lewis, who'd been a, a police driving instructor for a dozen or so years, um, we, we, we were the, the ones that were lucky enough to get the role. So both of us already worked for Suffolk Constabulary. I think that was a, a, a big factor in why we got the job. And the training. So obviously you were familiar with aircraft, but obviously a new concept in terms of now jumping into back of a helicopter with with different roles. Obviously you've got your pilot, you've then got somebody operating the unique equipment which operates the cameras, then assume somebody else operating mapping systems. Tell us through the training and some of the intricacies of the helicopter and how it really supports guys and girls on the ground. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly what you've got. Uh, it's certainly in the UK, the um, the crew is one pilot and two observers, as we were called then. Uh, and the observer in the front is talking to the control room and getting all the information, helping the pilot with bits and pieces and checklists and so on. Uh, but when you get to the scene is the person operating the, the camera. Um, and it, it could be a daylight camera, it could be a thermal imaging camera, depending on, on what it is you're, you're doing. So to to capture evidence and to and to search for people as well, uh, and the 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 observer in the rear is doing all the uh, mapping as you say to get you to the job, and he's kind of the mission manager. So is the final decision as to what you're going to do on the job, and they're also the observer who's speaking to the guys and girls on the ground. So that's kind of how it breaks down in the helicopter. Uh, and the training itself, uh, we went away to um, the International Police Air Training School, which sounds very grand, doesn't it? Incredibly um, grand. It's basically one bloke in a helicopter at Gloucester Airport. But um, <laughs> uh, but we did two weeks there learning the very basics uh, yeah. of, of, uh, of navigation and of a little bit of meteorology and obviously how the police works as well. So how to carry out a, a pursuit commentary, how to search in the countryside, how to search in the, in the town and, and so on. Uh, and then we went back to, uh, to the force and we did um, a couple of months training there, uh, learning about the individual equipment on our helicopter. Uh, and also learning about the, the force as well. So we went out with all the different units in the force to, to get a feel for those people that we would be supporting. Um, and then we were, we were teamed up with, uh, with observers and, and went off live. I, w I was very lucky um, <clears throat> in 2010, 2011, uh, my service extends to Queensland and, and Queensland only brought into service in, the, in that period uh, a helicopter to support operations on the ground in, in a policing form and one of the biggest areas of training for us was crew resource management and in terms of getting along with your colleagues and I you know the team selection being able to understand what each had to do and understanding fatigue and human factors and and what could make us better operators and what could cause us to have to have issues and not be able to work at our most optimum levels and in the air there's nothing worse than being with somebody who's not able to function because obviously it could put everyone's lives in danger and equally you don't get the best out of each flight or mission that you're carrying out obviously the, the teamwork would have been incredibly important small teams is was that the same for you in Suffolk in terms of the small team that was put together and how you all got along very much so uh, you know it wasn't a big team anyway there were you know three full-time line pilots and um seven or eight observers something like that um and 
the individual teams were obviously three people and you would be together for eight, nine, ten hours uh, without, you know, if you were on the ground, you'd be together. If you're in the air, you'd be together. Uh, So, yeah, you had to get along. Um, And if there were any times that you didn't get along on the ground, you had to leave that behind on the ground uh, as soon as you as soon as you got in the aircraft. Let's talk about some of the ways that the, the air operations support people. You've been very kind to send me along a, a few examples of some of the incredible work that you've done over your policing career in the sky. Um, the first one is obviously missing persons. Missing persons are something that is a regular occurrence for police forces right up and down the country. And obviously the higher risk people are youngsters that go missing, children, and then also the elderly who may have illnesses and ailments, dementia, Alzheimer's and other issues. There are two categories of high-risk missing persons that we obviously pay a bit more attention to. You've sent me an amazing example of an elderly lady who'd gone missing. Are you able to talk us through that incident and tell us how it was resolved? Sure. Uh, it was It was a night when um, where all the forces worked together in, in, in our part of the world. Uh, so uh, we were based in Suffolk using the Cambridgeshire helicopter with a, an Essex pilot. So we we're all working together, <laughs> wow. all working together very well. And uh, we were covering um, the area basically from the Wash down to the English Channel. So the whole of the eastern counties of, of, uh, of Suffolk, uh, uh, Suffolk, Norfolk, Essex, Cambridgeshire, Kent, all of that. Um, and uh, and we'd, it had been a busy night and we'd been all over the place. And, and then very late, we got a call to a uh, missing person in, in Essex, only about sort of five or six minutes flying time from base. And it was a, an elderly lady and they noticed that she wasn't in her room in the uh, in the, the residential home that, that she lived in. Uh, and they really didn't know how long she'd been missing. So uh, we went and we did a quick search of the, the roads around to make sure there was no one uh, just wandering around on the, the roads nearby. But we knew that they could kind of drive that in the cars just as, as easily as we could. But out of the back of, of, uh, of this residential home was lots and lots of open fields that led onto marshes and then onto river. So that was where we concentrated. And we spent quite a bit of time searching. Um, and one thing that um, people with dementia will often do is follow a line feature. Uh, and, and, and sometimes they'll march backwards and forwards along that line feature for for uh, for a very long time quite often they're found in water uh, but it's not that they're in some way attracted to water it's the fact that they've followed line features until they can go no further wow. uh, so we followed line features and we saw it was a cold night um, and we saw we saw lots of wildlife foxes and rabbits and, and that kind of thing and then we spotted one hot spot one thing glowing white on the on the thermal imager um, which was just a bit bigger than a rabbit or a fox. And it was right on the edge of some undergrowth. We couldn't say for definite that it was that it was our missing person, but it was worth getting officers in to, to have a look. Yeah, from 99, about 200 yards ahead of you, no problems. Heading in the general direction of Emerson's Green. Uh, and apparently they really had to fight their way in through brambles and, and so on. Um, but eventually got there to this elderly lady who was alive and well, but cold and fairly scratched and, and bruised. And I think she was only wearing night clothes, as far as I remember. And um, they couldn't get her out from there. Um, 
they they couldn't get her out the way they'd come in because it was all through brambles and things. They couldn't carry her through there. Um, and the other side was, I say, old marshes and so on. Uh, so our, our pilot, a chap called Steve Price, found a, a field to land in. And um, that's not a small matter, uh, landing at night in a field that's never been intended to be used as an airfield, because uh, there are lots of things that can catch you out. But we used to practice that a lot. And uh, Steve took us in and landed on, and um, we we went into the to the um, the undergrowth uh, from the field, and uh, and there was the lady, and we managed to carry her out uh, that way, and onto the helicopter, and uh, we flew her to Colchester Hospital and landed on the helipad there, uh, and and took her inside, and she was fine. Incredible story, and obviously. When you're, you know, a, a pilot is one person and one of the greatest challenges to helicopters particularly is low wires, is electrical wires, is poles. It's all that sort of stuff which if you get caught in the blades, it's an incredibly awkward and very prickly situation to get out of very quickly and things sort of, <laughs> things spiral out of control very, very quickly. So <clears throat> as air observers, how do you support the pilot in landing in a field that he's never landed in before, very little situational awareness? Do the cameras that you have on the aircraft, the thermal imaging cameras, do they help paint a picture for him? Thermal imaging, yes, yeah. thermal imaging cameras uh, help uh, greatly, and that's generally done from the front of the helicopter. So the pilot has also got eyes on the picture. Um, so you can you can scope out the entire field quite quickly with that. And in the rear, you've got control of the night sun, which is a, a, a really powerful um, uh, torch. You know, a huge a huge mm. uh, spotlight. Uh, so you would keep you you would keep that on until about fifty feet or so, and then turn that off, and the pilot would switch to his his usual landing lights, and that would be sufficient for the very final few feet. And then the incredible part of this is, is that you go from detection in terms of identifying the individual, getting the, you know, getting the ground resources into support, you know, to provide that immediate first aid. But then you become the rescuers in terms of conveying somebody to hospital, which can, which is done obviously at pace because of the ability to fly as the crow flies directly as line of sight to that particular location. That must be a pretty amazing feeling to know that you've had such an impact on somebody's life. Absolutely, uh, you know they were they were the days and the nights that it were you it was really worth going into work, and it's something that we did, you know, a week wouldn't pass when you did a job similar to that. Um, searching for for people was about seventy percent of what we did, whether that be for missing persons or for offenders who'd made off. Um, and I can barely think of a week that we didn't do a missing person job that felt really worthwhile. Uh, and towards the end of my time on the helicopter, so um, the, the late 2000s and the, and the early 2010s, it seemed to get more and more prevalent as well, more and more missing persons. Is there, we've spoken an awful lot throughout the series um, in the podcast about dealing with the emotional side of policing, often associated with uh, unexplained or what what could be described as a violent death that officers have to attend to, detectives investigate, they see firsthand some of the trauma that happens on our roads, whether it's a result of a, uh, of a traffic accident or a homicide. What sort of emotions do you go through as a team in the sky 
when you find a heat source or you find somebody who's no longer alive or you haven't been able to find them? What are the feelings that you go through as a team in terms of trying to get to grips that you haven't been able to make the difference that you probably wanted to? The worst is not being able to find someone. Mm. Um, whether you find someone in time or not isn't something that you can you can affect. Um, you know, you go out, you do the best job that you can do, um, and hopefully you find them in time. But you can't really control that. Uh, but whether or not you find someone, whether it's true or not, you feel as though that's something you should be able to control. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the ones that that really uh, sort of stuck with me. <clears throat> I remember uh, two, uh, an elderly gentleman who uh, who we didn't find uh, and was actually found uh, over a year later. Uh, wow. And and uh, a young a young chap who was I think about eight years old who disappeared one May bank holiday weekend, and he was never found. Uh, and those two stay with me more so than than all of the others. Um, uh, you know, a lot of the times out in the countryside, if we found people uh, <clears throat> generally who had taken their own life, uh, which we did uh, a few times, unfortunately, uh, because it was out in the countryside, we would land and and go in there and 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 be the ones who the first ones to discover them. You know, we wouldn't try and talk police officers in because they were generally too far away and it was too complicated to do that. Uh, so, you know, lots of times I've, I've found myself in, uh, in isolated woods, um, having a rather one way conversation with somebody about why they felt that that was, uh, that was the best way um, to, to deal with the situation. Um, but I, I guess I'm kind of lucky. I, um, I, I did the job the best I could, and then I kind of left it behind. So I'm lucky that I can do that. And on the flip side, in terms of emotion and, and dealing with those often challenging situations and being able to process them in your own mind and, and, and compartmentalise them so that you can you know cope and move forward from them, is also then on the other side of that, the adrenaline buzz of when, for instance, you get officers involved in pursuits with other vehicles and you've got multiple assets involved and you, you become the, you know, the, the tactical flight coordinator from the sky in terms of trying to coordinate the best response in terms of penning somebody in. What are those sort of emotions like in terms of being able to stay calm and not getting a bit carried away? Because down on the ground, adrenaline driving a car at high speed is very hard to kind of keep yourself professional and functioning. What's it like in the sky? Believe me, there's quite a bit of adrenaline going on in the sky uh, as well. <laughs> But we are that we are detached, both both physically and and a little bit emotionally from that, um, because we know that once we're following a car, there is no or even a motorbike, there is no way it's going to get away from. Bye bye. If you continue, um, everyone else uh, to abort, please. The helicopters to uh, continue to follow us to remain at a safe distance. Uh, that's from Hotel One Zero. You know, there's no, there's absolutely nowhere to go. So, you know, if you're following a car on the road, it could get away from you. Uh, that was never the case for us. We knew that we were, we knew that we'd be able to follow it until uh, until it, it stopped one way or another. So, uh, but it's a very, very busy time. A pursuit. It is the busiest job that uh, that a well, all of the crew do. Uh, you know, it's very busy for the pilot trying to move the aircraft around to keep the the car in the right place. Very busy for the camera operator trying to stay on the car that's 
obviously uh, carrying out some strange maneuvers from time to time. And then the observer in the back who's giving the commentary, and you know, it's a left, 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 it's a right, 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 it's crashed, it's crashed, it's crashed, and all that kind of thing. That's incredibly busy because you're trying to decipher which road they're on, which way they're going. And then you're also trying to think, well, where could I put police officers? Where can I put stinger units to get their tires let down and, and all that kind of thing. Uh, but wh when it works out, it is fantastic. Yeah, from 99, uh, is going north, going at north. Units on the main road, about turn, about turn up towards the industrial units. Yeah, 99, is he at the top of the main or is he on Tower Road North, please? Right, units at the mini roundabout, hold there, hold there. One of the areas that's always intrigued me is that, you know, when you're in a pursuit on the ground, there's cars everywhere, so you've got to manage other cars, you've got to manage pedestrians, you've got to manage motorbikes, buses, you name it. In the sky, you've also got to manage other aircraft. So if you're in a if you're in a pursuit type environment, how do you how do you gather that situation? How does a pilot understand what is going on around him in terms of maybe light aircraft, civil aircraft, big commercial stuff coming into major airports or coming into the country? That must be the greatest challenge for you. Yeah, I mean, where we operate uh, down at sort of a thousand, fifteen hundred feet, commercial air traffic doesn't uh, doesn't get down into that airspace except when it's coming in to take off and land. And obviously, yeah. at those places, you've got you've got air traffic control. So we would just speak to air traffic control and let them know what we were doing, and basically they would sort it out. Um, if we uh, our call sign was uh, well for Suffolk was police three five that was always our call sign and a police call sign would generally be given uh, sort of carte blanche to do pretty much what they wanted uh, but we would we would also cooperate with them but if we became police three five alpha that let them know that it was a it was a life and death job and we were coming through and they'd have to deal with it. It's incredible because one of the things we talk about in terms of the ability one of the greatest advantages of air support is as you described not only the ability to i think reduce risk on the ground because once you're over the top of a stolen vehicle it's not going to lose sight so so troops can kind of back off a little bit and it doesn't have to be so intense until the pursuit comes to an end and then your job is to harvest in where all these baddies have gone to so you can cordon and contain and then affect the arrests but one of the the greatest assets of a helicopter is the speed at which it can get to an incident now i said i i would assume that that has both positives and negatives and your next story is fascinating because there's been times where you've got to armed incidents before firearms officers tell us about that when we were covering uh, suffolk which was where most of our work was uh, there wasn't a part of the county that was more than 15 minutes flying time away from from our base um, and Suffolk's a big rural county, and it doesn't have a massive number of police officers. So, um, so quite often, and particularly specialist police officers. So um, it would it would quite often, if you had a firearms job, you would find out that the firearms car was 30, 45 minutes away, something like that. Oh wow! Uh, whereas we were ten minutes away. Um, and the one that you're talking about was um, a, a gentleman who'd been seen uh, tramping around fields with a shotgun, which isn't a an unusual thing but he didn't look like a, a, a farmer or a you know a, a hunter or anything like that um so uh, we attended this small village and sure enough uh, just on the edge of the village uh, in a in a field was a gentleman with the shotgun 
Uh, and we had a, a loudspeaker system called Skyshout on the on the helicopter. Love it. Um, so we uh, <laughs> and I was in the front of the helicopter that day. Uh, next to me was a pilot called John Atkinson, and he hovered it in just the right sort of place that it's supposed to work for the the Skyshout, um, looking directly at this uh, at this chap. And uh, and I got on the Skyshout and said, "This is the police helicopter." Uh, lay your weapon down, lie on the ground, put your hands on your head, that kind of thing. And um, <laughs> the, the funny brilliant. thing is with Sky Show is you can't hear it when you're saying it. You get no feedback into your helmet. So you're, you're shouting out into nothing and you occasionally get a waft of it on the, on the air, but you can't hear it. Anyway, this gentleman decided that, uh, that that wasn't what he felt like doing today. And he, he raised the shotgun up uh, to, to shoot at us. Jesus I Christ. I don't know how well it would have gone. Um, oh. You know, shooting at a helicopter that's hovering just in front of you is probably a bad idea anyway. But uh, but anyway, we bravely ran away, um, did a circuit and came back and tried again. And I got on the sky show. This is a police helicopter. Lie on the ground and put your hands on your head. And this time he decided to comply. So he he did that. He lay down. And we just flew around and around for, for five minutes, keeping him on the ground. Uh, when the, and then the, the firearms car turned up and took control of him and took him away. We don't know what happened to him. And uh, that was the end of the job for us. And then about three hours later, um, a friend of mine from the control room, a lady called Joe Rickaby, phoned up and said, uh, we've just had a phone call from that village you were in a couple of hours ago. Said, oh, OK. What's that? And uh, said it was a an old lady asking if her husband could get up now. And apparently what had happened is this old chap out in his garden doing his, his allotment or whatever had heard, this is the police helicopter, lie <laughs> on the ground and put your hands on your head. And he'd, he'd complied immediately. Oh, bless him. And after about an hour, she'd taken him a cup of tea uh, <laughs> and uh, he'd, he'd had that, but uh, wanted to now know if he could get up. And she was, uh, she was told that, yes, he could get up now. And thank you very much. What an incredible story. But I suppose that uh, what an incredibly tense moment in terms of having to, we'll say, tactically withdraw from a chap who's refusing to comply, who's armed with, I assume, a double barrel shotgun. That must be quite a dynamic. It must be being inside a helicopter whilst a pilot is pulling some sort of maneuver to get out of there pretty quickly must be quite incredible to be in the in the midst of. Yeah, I mean, most of our pilots were ex-Army Air Corps pilots, so um, they'd spent a lot of time in, in Northern Ireland, so they were used to people threatening them in one way or another, uh, and they were they were used to reacting quickly. So, uh, and and uh, particularly John Atkinson, who was a great friend of mine, still is. Um, the helicopter was sort of an extension of him. Mm. He didn't think about flying a helicopter. It's just it it was as natural as walking down the road for him. It must instill an awful lot of confidence in you when you're sitting beside somebody with a skill set as impressive as that, with the experience and the wealth of knowledge, as you would expect to have in somebody, whether they're flying in a police helicopter, a HEMS aircraft, you know, the skill set's incredible. It must be, as a team, it's one function that is incredibly important in making sure things go well. Absolutely. And with everything in life, that skill set between people varied massively. Uh, so yeah. some night, some nights you didn't feel as uh, as comfortable. Wow, well, that's incredible. And the one thing that's always fascinated me is is that 
people often always talk about there's no way you'd ever get me in a helicopter because I know if the engines stop on a plane, I've got glide angle, I've got wind keeping me up, I've got these things called wings. And everyone talks about the auto rotation of a helicopter. What sort of training do you go through in terms of those emergency procedures to be able to understand the capabilities of the aircraft you're flying in and what you need to do, for instance, if there is a service landing under auto rotation or a water landing? That training must be fairly intense. Yeah, uh, every day you, you train for the day when it goes wrong. So every yeah. day we would pick an emergency to go through and we would talk through it in the crew room. And then we would talk through it in the helicopter. Um, the, the front seat observer um, read out the emergency checklists to, to make sure those things are working. So every day we practice that. Um, once or twice we needed it for real. Um, and the under, underwater escape training, uh, that, was, uh, that was only once every three years when they basically lock you in a box, dunk you in the water, turn you upside down and turn the lights off and, and see who lives. 29th of November 2013 is a date in history, especially in the aviation sector, will probably go down in history as probably one of the most tragic days in police aviation history when a police aircraft tragically came out of the skies and caused a significant loss of life, not only to the police crew, but to people on the ground. Rescue workers clear wreckage from the roof of a pub in Glasgow after a police helicopter crashed into the building on Friday night. It's one of the darkest areas in the city. That helicopter is looking down on the flat roof of your pub. It wouldn't have been lit, would it? No, it's definitely not. It's very dark in that area. There's only one street lamp. You couldn't see any because it was like a wall. Obviously, the, 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 the ceiling or the roof had came down and I think it was on top of them. This is a, a black day for Glasgow and for Scotland. How did that affect the aviation community in the policing world? It it was one of the, it was it was one of the things that kind of contributed to the end of my career on on the helicopter. I decided um for one reason or another uh, that it was time for me to move on. Um and um that night um when the when the the, the police Scotland helicopter crashed I was working in Suffolk in precisely the same kind of helicopter and was actually flying at the time that it happened. <clears throat> we landed and um, I went to do the, uh, the paperwork that you do after landing and our pilot, a chap called Bill Davis, went through to uh, the, the crew room and switched on the news and, uh, and there it was on the news and he called us through to, to go and look. Um, and there were lots of repercussions for operators of that type of aircraft, the EC-135, um, because there were questions over the reliability of the fuel gauge and, and, and all, sorts of, all sorts of things. So that echoed on for, for, for many weeks. Um, and for me, it kind of made me aware of my mortality and, and made me aware that, you know, you don't come back every time. Mm. And... The EC-135 is a helicopter which is used globally for an awful lot of different ways. So it's a it's a fantastic piece of kit. But am, am I am I right in saying that most police services now are using different types of aircraft? What are, what are we still using the EC-135? No, we're still aircraft? using the EC-135. Uh, in fact, the one that I was flying that night is still operating as a police aircraft with the National Police Air Service now. It's incredible, and obviously we we obviously take a moment to remember that crew because you know, as you quite rightly say it's it's something that has been remembered for years gone by and I'm, I'm a, lessons learned and 
but families equally lost loved ones. And I think just goes to show as much as there are challenges on the ground for police staff in terms of what they do and the people they meet and the risks and the challenges, equally the risks and the challenges for those in support services such as aviation face as equally greater challenges and, and challenges which definitely demonstrate risk to the job that you're carrying out. And that's something I suppose you think about daily, but ultimately the training you do ensures you're in the best position to respond to any situation that you may be presented with. So it's um, it's something I think that you know, keeps us all humble and, and make sure we're, we're, we're obviously operating at the, at the best level we can be. But I wanted to to talk about the, the third scenario that you've, you've kindly provided, which is an incident where um, investigation into Steve Wright and the disappearance um, of a young lady in December 2006. You know, the helicopter support service supports with, as we say, missing people. Uh, and ultimately, some of those missing people turn into homicide investigations and investigations of different natures. Talk us through that incident. It sounds quite interesting. Well, um, Tanya Nichol went missing on the 30th of October uh, 2006 and was treated as a missing person. Um, and uh, we were aware of uh, her background. Uh, one of the ways that you find missing persons is to find out how they live their life. Um, and uh, we were where she had a somewhat chaotic life. Uh, but we uh, we went out and searched for her and um, for uh, her clothing and, and, and things like that. Um, but we, we didn't find her. Um, and over the next few weeks, four other young ladies um, also disappeared. Um, and, uh, and then um, their, their bodies started to be found. Uh, around Suffolk and um, so we spent a lot of time during that period uh, flying over Ipswich basically as reassurance patrols uh, there were lots of patrols on the ground as well as a as a presence to the public yeah yeah absolutely uh, wow. you know that the lead up to the lead up to Christmas 2006 in Ipswich was was like no other uh, for for women in the town and uh, you know, I've, I've got a wife and two daughters and they, they were aware of it as well uh, as in, in the lead up to uh, to that Christmas. Um, yeah, so so we were doing a lot of that. Uh, but the investigation team moved very, very quickly and Steve Wright was uh, was arrested uh, very, very quickly. And then um, our work on it moved into um, basically gathering evidence. So photographs and videos of the of the scene and 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 so on and so forth and and, and different uh, areas that were that were involved in the in the crimes that that he committed um to uh, to get that through court so that, that's another interesting area in terms of the intelligence capability that the air support wing can give you in terms of being able to capture images from the sky or do some surveillance operations or you know there are so many different facets of the aircraft that can be used for in terms of, you know, some of those intelligence components. What's the greatest area of advantage that you believe the aircraft offers policing on the ground? Well, the first one we've already mentioned is speed of response. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of work done which suggested that uh, a helicopter needed to get to an incident within 20 minutes of the incident happening, you know, a live a live incident um, to have a real chance of success. So, you know, if someone had 
had committed a crime and had it on their toes. You needed to get there within 20 minutes to give you a real chance of success. Um, every minute over that and your, your chances dropped dramatically. Um, so, yeah, speed of response was uh, was an important one. Uh, but obviously, we got a view of things that nobody else did as well. So uh, quite often, if there was an operation being planned, we'd go and do photography or videos to help the officers doing that so they could see quite literally the lie of the land. Mm. And also, we would take photographs and videos uh, after the event, so at serious crimes and at serious road traffic collisions, uh, to give the court or the coroner uh, the, the the lie of the land. 2014 is when, um, let's say, you hang up your policing aviation helmet and depart from uh, the National Police Air Service, and you've moved into the Civil Aviation Authority, um, which is obviously an incredibly important area in terms of safety and standard and auditing and making sure that the standards of aviation remain as high as they can be and ultimately ensuring that it remains one of the safest forms of transport uh, right across the world because at any one time there are thousands of aircraft, fixed wing and rotor, both in the sky. What was that, that, that transition out of policing, obviously you said was instigated by the tragic incident of 2013, but moving into the safety standards, what triggered that movement? Uh, well, my my move really was was uh, was was triggered by the introduction of the National Police Air Service, uh, because the number of helicopters uh, was reduced dramatically. The way that we operated changed massively. So until that point, I felt that I was turning up to work to help people in trouble and to lock up the bad people. That was what I did. Um, unfortunately, when we moved to the National Police Air Service, that seemed to change to, um, did you tick a box to say that you took off within five minutes of the call or whatever it, it, the, the KPI was, uh, but it had nothing to do with whether you were actually effective uh, in the role. And the way that the National Police Air Service was originally instituted was a way that was almost designed to make sure that we were of very little use to the officers that we were trying to support. So that was the reason that I moved on, that I felt that I wasn't I wasn't doing the job that I'd signed up for. Um, and things like the, the Clutha Vaults uh, tragedy uh, just cemented that that move for me. The move to the civilian, uh, the Civil Aviation Authority uh, was uh, was was fantastic. Uh, a lot of the people who did the uh, the job that I initially went into with the CAA um, were ex police officers anyway. So there was a, a lot of understanding on on the way that things that things yeah. worked, and uh, you know there was a lot that I that we carried over from working for the police uh, into uh, into those roles within the civilian uh, the civil aviation authority. What do you think the greatest challenge? We talk about the challenges facing policing right across the UK. Um, you know numbers and. And, and the stress and the challenges and, and the crime. What do you think the greatest challenge is for the, um, the policing aviation services right across the country in the next five to ten years? Will they still remain to be an important resource to policing in order to be successful in reducing crime and detecting it and preventing it and then helping officers in, in, in being able to arrest the individuals? Obviously, I believe they should. Um, and... Um... It is, a, it is a lot more difficult now because, for instance, we, we averaged 1,500 jobs a year in Suffolk. That's wow. how many jobs we did. Um, in the last financial year, Suffolk had a helicopter on 32 jobs. 
so that's a significant difference yeah. in numbers there. So yes, it saves them money, but uh, but at what cost? Um, uh, uh, an aircraft can uh, can clear a massive area of land, uh, can search a massive area of land in a very very short time. It takes about mm. 10, 11 minutes to do a square mile of of land. It takes mm. hundreds of hours of officers to do the same. Even if you go and you say there's nobody in that area, you have saved those hundreds of hours of officers who mm. can go off and do something else. As you mentioned in pursuits, you can you can see what the road's like. You can see what the traffic conditions are like. You can warn people that there are pedestrians up ahead. You yeah. can let them back off slightly so that the pursuing officers, the people who are being pursued, and the people who may become involved uh, as bystanders, they're all a lot safer. That you haven't got if you don't have a helicopter overhead. Um, so the way that things are at the moment, I think it's it's very difficult. Obviously, there are there's the introduction of drones and things like that for for missing persons and that kind of thing. And I understand they're having some success with that, but you haven't got the speed of response with a drone because obviously it's in the back of a police car, so it's no quicker than any of the other police cars. Uh, yeah, so I, I don't think it's in a in a good good state at the moment from what i understand but obviously it's a long time since i since i left it behind so uh, and i hope it can continue to uh, to support uh, the police service because it needs that support now more than ever you have also written an incredible book um since your time called above the law tell us what was the um the trigger to to start writing what the book is about and uh, how, we're, we're, how successful it's been and, and what you've got out of it. Well, I, I've always written. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's gone alongside aviation in my, in my life as a passion. I think I was eight when uh, we were asked to write an essay on what the world would be like in the future. And uh, the teacher liked it and read it out to the class and they all liked it as well. And I thought, well, this is brilliant. I'll do this then. Uh, so I've always written in one way or another, uh, and I've oh, written for lovely. aviation magazines and, and, and that kind of thing over the years. And then in 2017, I was reading a book called Rescue Pilot by a chap called Jerry Grayson, who was a Royal Navy search and rescue pilot. And it was a fantastic book. But as I was reading it, I thought, well, I've got, I've got at least this many stories. <laughs> uh, so I sat down with my logbooks, and uh, I went through and saw... Uh, what memorable incidents there were, you know, some of the uh, some of the ones that we've talked about and, and lots of others, uh, some of the harrowing ones, some of the funny ones, uh, and, uh, and and wrote them all down. And um, I I I was I had uh, some some illness towards the end of 2017 and it gave me I had a few months of recovery and it gave me time to sort through the stories and put them in an order that told a good story. Uh, and and I did that. I was lucky enough to find um, iBooks, and and they loved it uh, as much as I did, and uh, and offered to publish it. So it was published by Amazing. iBooks in July of 2021, and it has just been absolutely absolutely amazing. Nothing. I, nothing would have prepared me for it. You know, it's it it sold it sold well. Uh, but more than that, I've got hundreds and hundreds of people telling me how much they've enjoyed it some people even saying that it's changed the way that they view things uh, certainly people in the police service uh, coming to me and, and telling me it's been of real use it's just been fantastic and humbling uh, and and wonderful 
you 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 said that you reflected on your logbooks and your keen aviation has continued even after your policing career in the sky. How many hours do you have now in the sky, and what are you doing to keep that uh, that aviation bug up? Are you flying privately? Um, I don't know how many hours I've got. So it's, it's sort of in all of the various ways. It, it's sort of I guess about three thousand, three and a half thousand, something like that. Oh, wow. Um, and um, you know, nothing compared to to airline pilots and even even some service pilots and things. But uh, yeah, I I own a a, a share in a 1946 uh, Aronka Champ uh, and there Lovely. are four of us four of us that own it and it's kept on a little grass strip in Suffolk and whenever I can hopefully tomorrow morning if the weather's nice um, I'll just go and poodle around the skies of Suffolk for for half an hour or so uh, just to to get my fix. Uh, that must bring back many memories though Do you, are you able to separate your aviation time from being up in the sky in a helicopter or whilst you're up there flying around you this is when the memories start streaming back of over different parts of the countryside that you're probably over and familiar with absolutely i mean elmset is only um a couple of miles away from watersham where we were based so i i'm I'm operating over the same country the whole time but even just driving around suffolk yeah you know you'll be driving along the road and you think i went to a road traffic collision there that's where we found that body this is where so and so so all of the time uh yeah, that that comes back to me, uh, and and I bore my wife with the stories, the same stories every time we go past. <laughs> well, it's the book is fascinating. Uh, I must admit, I can't wait to start getting stuck into it. As an aviation enthusiast myself, I'm very keen to understand and to listen and to read some of the anecdotes of your career spanning a number of years uh, in policing in the sky. Uh, where can we get a copy if we're interested? And, and, and those, importantly, that listen to this podcast right across the globe, how can they get a copy of this fascinating book? Basically, you can get it anywhere that you'd normally buy a book. So uh, your local bookshop, if they don't have it in stock, they can get it in stock in a, a day or two normally. Um, and all of the all of the big stockists uh, have it available. So, you know, your waterstones and foils and all that kind of thing. Um, it's also available o- online uh, at the, the Big River place um, without giving them a plug. But it's, it's available online at the world's <laughs> biggest bookseller. Um, and it's available directly from the publisher. That's i-books.com. Amazing. Well, listen, the last hour of our conversations about your work in the aviation world in policing has been fascinating. It's an area that we've wanted to cover for some time now. And it's so interesting to understand the challenges, the pressures, the types of jobs you you supported with uh, and equally, you know, how you manage those effectively to create this ability to support officers on the ground do what they do so well but equally demonstrating that the role of aviation support is something which is incredibly important and should be remembered that there are equally just as many risks up in the sky as there are down on the ground and the emotions the thoughts and the feelings are equally the same as you described often you're the first person who finds the individual that may not necessarily be alive and ultimately because officers are too far away you're there making that assessment, giving them an update and then bringing them in when you can. So um, there are many, many challenges and many that people won't be aware of. So I think on behalf of uh, my team and I, thank you ever so much for your service. It's been fascinating to hear. Not and, at all. Uh, it was it was an absolute pleasure. I'm, I'm, I'm very grateful I got to see what I think was the golden age of police air support in the UK. Uh, but it was it was an honour to be able to support all of those police officers every day. 
Yeah, incredible. Well, we wish you the best of luck with the Civil Aviation Authority and and ultimately wish you the very much the best of luck with the book. But I don't think you need any luck because it looks so fascinating that it's clearly flying off the shelves. So thank you ever so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Oliver. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence.